Hi, this is Casper Kelly. And Alex Allgood. And you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Howdy. <laughs> Howdy to you, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great. Doing awesome. And we got a great show today. Uh, who is on the show? Well, this is a fine example of why doing podcasts is a worthy pursuit. So around Christmas, we did host wraps, and I told you about a movie I saw on HBO Max called Adult Swim's Yule Log and how awesome it was. You watched it, and you agreed. And you and I rarely agree. We're not, we're not really on the same page all the time. That's true. Sometimes, but not rarely, always. But occasionally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in my effusiveness, a very old friend of mine who I know from my days doing makeup effects in Mobile, Alabama, named Chris Mills, reached out to me. He lives in Atlanta and he knows Casper Kelly. Oh, who's the creator of uh, Yule Log. Yeah. And Chris said, I can put you guys in touch. Would you like to talk to Casper Kelly? And we said yes. And we asked Casper if he'd like to come on the show. And he said, sure thing. And brought his DP, Alex Allgood. And I cannot be more excited. I want to spread the word of this movie far and wide. I know it's no longer Christmas. Hey, it's almost a month past Christmas. It's still a great time for you to sit down and watch Yule Log on HBO Max if you have it. It is, uh, it's hard to describe but it's awesome in about 500 ways. And uh, we have Casper Kelly and Alex Allgood, the DP, on the show. And Casper also is well known for creating a thing called Too Many Cooks, which if you've never seen that, you should uh, hop on the old YouTube and look up Too Many Cooks because it's brilliant. His work is transcendently surreal, darkly funny, and hilariously dark. Uh, I'll make sure that in the show notes for this episode at camnoir.com, we will have a link to go watch uh, Too Many Cooks. All right. Well, before we get to the interview, there's been a lot of stuff happening uh, oh, in yeah. the news and entertainment news. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm suggesting we do a little roundup here because uh, there, there's so much stuff and we won't uh, dwell on any one thing too long. But uh, Ben, you want to you want to take it away? What's the big headline uh, or <laughs> well, of, of the many headlines this week? Well, the big headline. OK, so as you're listening to this, the Oscar nominations will be out, but we haven't heard them yet. So uh, so that'll probably be the biggest entertainment news. But honestly, some of the big entertainment news is it's, it's a story we've been tracking from the beginning and it's the shooting on the set of Rust. The news this week is that Alec Baldwin is being charged with involuntary manslaughter. The first AD has basically already pled guilty and is dealing with it because the first AD told everyone on set that the gun was not loaded. And the armorer is also being uh, formally charged. Now, I, I went off on a humongous rant about this when it happened because I don't really believe that we should be using blank rounds on set except in extreme circumstances there's almost no reason to do it anymore and it it's inefficient and costs a lot of money and brings a and is dangerous a huge element of danger that you don't need to have because you can add muzzle flash in post and it's and you can use an airsoft gun and there can be like virtually no danger beyond that of any other prop that you would have on set that all being said the real question is Who's responsible for it? Is it the armorer? Is it the first AD? Is it Alec Baldwin? Is it some combination thereof? And in my opinion, uh, whatever was in that gun was what the armorer put in that gun. And yes, Alec Baldwin and the first AD should have checked it. That's 
kind of normal protocol when you're dealing with guns. But you also have a specialist in an armor who is there, and that's their whole job. And she really, like, it, it never should have happened. The producers have to bear some responsibility to this as, as well, though, too, because they place their their trust and, you know, they, they hide behind uh, limited liability companies. Yeah. And uh, it, it's very interesting to see the the statements that, uh, you know, the production company made saying like, oh, we, we trust the experts that we hired. But there needs to be, I think, probably more serious vetting. I think this was the Armorer's second movie. And it's interesting, too, because Helena's widower also said that he supports the charges and are, is going to fully cooperate. But of course, he also did sign a, a settlement as well. So, mm. well, it's, Alec, it's, Alec Baldwin is one of the producers. He so is one I, of the producers. He's not so, being charged in that capacity, though. I think he's being charged actually as the person who pulled the trigger. And I guess they did forensic testing on the gun and basically found it was impossible or impossible for that gun to misfire without the trigger being pulled, which I know, which was was stated and originally that he never pulled the trigger. And I guess that that's part of the reason why he's being being charged now is because they, they found that that's not possible. Yeah, now we don't want to completely dwell on this, but I feel like it's no. important for us to uh, to bring this up. So, Ilya, w- why don't you bring our second topic in our newsy roundup? <laughs> yes, uh, you know, as much as it's interesting to to uh, delve back into the space again, there I feel relief actually to move on because it is uh, it's uh, one of the most harrowing and horrible stories of of twenty twenty two. It makes and, my heart ache. It makes my heart ache, and it makes me angry. It makes me yeah. angry that anything like that could ever happen on a set. Look, accidents happen on sets because people are doing it, and that's yeah. okay. People but there, not, should, yeah. there yeah. should be zero accidents around firearms on a set. There are too many safeties built in. Like the only accident that I would accept from a firearm is, oh, I dropped the gun and it landed on my foot and I hurt my foot. Like that's an accident that's a totally cromulent accident you can have on a set with a prop gun. You shouldn't be, nobody should be putting live rounds into prop guns. No one should ever be injured or killed by them. No, uh, definitely not. Okay, so uh, moving on, uh, the Sundance Film Festival is happening right now, and it's back in person, and uh, people were wondering whether or not it was going to be a big year for acquisitions, and wonder no longer, the first weekend is over, and already there's been several high-profile acquisitions, including at least half a dozen bidders on which the more bidders you have on a project, the higher that that sale price is going to go. A movie called Fair Play just sold for a reported $20 million, which which is really, you know, the will Wonka golden ticket if you go to Sundance and you're you're I mean, very few movies sell at Sundance for that kind of money and uh, has Netflix, any movie has any movie ever sold at Sundance for that much money yes a couple of movies have and including um Birth of a Nation I don't know if you remember that oh was, yeah yes. Yeah, that, oh, that was yeah, that was a whole that was a whole thing. But yes, anyway, uh, again, so now Fair Play has sold and there's a couple of other movies that also sold not for as much money, but that have been picked up. And I know that we will we're going to get into Sundance uh, in more detail in the coming weeks just because it's going on and there's there's news and stories and things happening. And I've already started screening movies and you've just screened a movie and we're going to start uh, interviewing and talking to the the filmmakers for a lot of these Sundance movies. So that's that's all interesting and exciting. I had a really great uh, interview earlier today and uh, I can't wait to bring that to everyone. It will probably be coming up in in early February is my guess. Excellent. Excellent. So we have two other items we wanted to kind of cover. One of them is something that I honestly don't know very much about, but it's something that I just want to put on people's radar. For the longest time, if you talked about a great film director, it was hard to not mention 
the legendary Francis Ford Coppola, who, you know, of course, made The Godfather, Godfather 2, The Conversation, Apocalypse Now, just so many amazing movies. Uh, you know, I would say his amazingness petered out a little bit, maybe into the 90s where he made stuff. I don't know. A lot of people like Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. You know, and then he did stuff like Jack with Robin Williams and mm-hmm. everything kind of slowed down. And then, you know, maybe starting about 15 years ago, he started making these little independent movies and i think it's really cool that he did it we interviewed the dp of uh, i think all of them mihai milimari and so coppola has what is like the epic of his lifetime that he's working on right now with a cast of everyone and it's called megalopolis and Mihai's shooting that again, so maybe we can get Mihai back on here. We uh, interviewed him for Jojo Rabbit a few years ago. But it's got, like, the cast is like Aubrey Plaza, Giancarlo Esposito, Adam Driver, Shia LaBeouf, um, Talia Shire. That's an For- incredible cast. Forrest Whitaker, Dustin Hoffman, Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, <laughs> That's incredible, yeah. Jason, Jason Schwartzman, who is a Coppola, so, you yeah, know, whatever. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just an amazing cast, and there's very little that's actually known about it, but I have great aspirations for this film. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen a Coppola. I mean, it's been a long time. There was we one Coppola yeah. movie. There was a Coppola movie that came out in, like, 2016, and I don't even remember it coming out, which is weird, mm-hmm. uh, because even Youth Without Youth and Tetro, like, you would hear about these movies but i'm very very interested to see megalopolis and i just want to put it up anyone who's listening to this just put it on your radar just kind of stick a little pin and a piece of string on the wall and start making a a crazy person uh you know kind of uh one of of those one of those (laughs) one of those uh, crime movie uh charts on the wall or how are they all connected just be aware i mean like if you are uh you know a film fan and i assume you are if you're listening to this coppola is in my opinion royalty in that world and i'm very very interested to see what megalopolis turns out to be yeah me me too that sounds amazing and then there's just one more thing we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Uh, just before recording this episode, actually, there was a statement that was released from the the head of a video game company, Ubisoft. And uh, I think that it stands to reason that we should we should mention this because he's now really bullish on the future of adapting uh, video game properties into content for other screens and other types of things like series, uh, for example, based on the success of The Last of Us. And we've been talking about this a little bit. The Last of Us has become a, a huge hit for HBO. And supposedly after the premiere, the second episode dropped and it had an uptick in views from the first week, which uh, again, it's a uh, linear sequential. They release weekly with this. It's not like uh, some of the other networks would just drop the entire season for people to binge. And so the head of Ubisoft, Jason Altman, said uh, very specifically that uh, he's hopeful that their property, Assassin's Creed, which is already was already a movie, but he's really serious about taking this and working with their partners to turn this into a series. And I, I know it's already in development, but it's interesting. I think we will start to hear more from the video game producers about their crossover into Hollywood. And I'm going to say it right now, even though video games and Hollywood have had this long relationship with things kind of coming and crossing over one way or the other, uh, movies that become video games. Uh, the first example I can think of is Tron way back when, mm-hmm. uh, and, or properties that are developed together. And I'm thinking of yes, movies like ET that also had an Atari video game that launched at the same time. Famously, there's a whole documentary about that. 
totally should, My, should watch a, it. a good friend of mine, Kat Paziak, the producer of 20 Seconds to Live, was the producer on the, that documentary. Oh, f- fantastic. Oh, that's, yeah. that's great. So anyway, my, my point is, though, there's these different waves of money that tend to come into Hollywood. And people think, think maybe most recently, uh, you know, sort of like this Chinese wave with like legendary entertainment. But various different companies and billionaires uh, have taken over Hollywood at one point or another. But I would say that you're going to see more of this crossover and then also probably more of the fueling of the avatar style filmmaking with, uh, you know, motion capture and video games and movies or television series all kind of uh, populating similar spaces. And who knows? I predict that maybe one of these video game companies that says, you know what, we're, we're going to buy a studio. We're going to go whole hog into this. So, so, you know, it's my prediction. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but just you wait. I think in the future here, there is going to be a interactive and passive entertainment empire that is very, very strong into video games. And you could make the case that, you know, Lucas and other people who are already really, really have done incredible things in the video game space and in the the movie space, I just think it's going to intensify and you'll see someone who's a non-traditional player come into this space and really make a big, big wave. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but mark my words, I, I think that we might be on the cusp in the next 10, 15 years or so of something like that. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that we might hit a point where the performance capture that they're doing for a video game, that they just go ahead and use that, like the very same performance capture for the game ends up being used for the movie, meaning same actors, same visual assets, because eventually these games, you know, the, the resolution on them, the game engine, everything about them is getting closer and closer. And then you look at something like Avatar 2 and you go like, that's all made in a computer, not all, but if you had Avatar level performance capture in a game, could you just simultaneously make you know because like on the last of us i keep seeing on youtube like all these comparisons of the the cut scenes to the scenes on the show and they're the same scene like the angles might be different the the characters look a little different but it's the same exact thing is happening in both i'll do you one better i think that you might go see the movie and you might have the exact same experience as far as visuals in your home version but i actually think that uh you if you so choose there are already are these games with very uh, elaborate character creation engines where you to be able to insert your own character into the storyline. And I think that the gamers are going to be able to stand in front of their web camera or their camera, whatever it is. And you are going to be able to put yourself into these properties. So these properties actually not only are you going to have the exact same uh, quality level, but you may do like a photograph sort of 360 reality thing of, of yourself where you turn in a circle and you do a little video capture and you wave a, a light wand around you or something like that and now all of a sudden voila it's your face on this character maybe not your voice maybe it will be your voice but but we'll see i i have a feeling that you you know how weird and and meta is this but i think that for those who so choose to they're going to be able to insert themselves into the game and have their own unique experiences sort of based on the movie or vice versa wow that's that's some ready player one shit right there Yes, I don't think the whole haptic feedback suit thing is coming to a world near you, but I do think that the customization of your uh, gaming experience to cross over into who you are and to be able to, and not everyone will choose this. Many other people will just rather like, hey, they'll take the default. But for those who want to, who really get into the game, the qualitative issues of, of rendering and storage and speeds that are required for this are quickly disappearing and as that happens and as uh, video games and movies begin to look more and more like each other mark my words there's going to be a whole world of crossover that that we can't even imagine just yet 
it'll be fun when you can put yourself into pre-existing movies like you could go play Terry Gilliam's Brazil or something like I I'd be so into that so this kind of leads us into the last thing that we wanted to talk about which there isn't much to talk about but it's congratulations Russell Carpenter and Avatar 2 for becoming only the sixth movie in film history to cross the two billion mark which I remember James Cameron just a few months ago saying this movie has to make two billion dollars to be profitable it has crossed that line Two billion dollars worldwide. Congratulations, they've made a buck now. They've, <laughs> they've they're, they're on the, they're on the plus side. They got out of the red. They're in the black. Congratulations to Team Cameron yeah. and uh, every, everyone behind that. Do not bet against James Cameron ever. You will yeah. lose. <laughs> All right, so Ben, let's get to the interview. Here is here's Casper Kelly and Alex Allgood. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, I'm here with Casper Kelly and Alex Allgood, the director and cinematographer of Eulog, a movie that defies explanation that uh, we talked about extensively on the show uh, several weeks ago, right around Christmas when it dropped. Uh, It's on HBO Max right now. Thank you both for coming on to the show. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having us on. Excited to talk about it. So I want to start very broadly. So uh, first off, I want to say that I saw this movie on HBO Max over Christmas. I was in Ohio. My my flight was delayed. I was stuck there for a few extra days. And my friend Graham Skipper had said something very positive about this. And my wife and I put it on one night after our son was asleep. And from the first frame, I could not take my eyes off of your movie. And it's, it's very unconventional, but it's nonstop entertaining and interesting. And uh, I even recommended it the other day to a friend of mine who's a director who was complaining on Facebook about how all the story structure stuff and script analysis he's done has made it so that nothing can ever surprise him. And I was like, I got something. I think it's going to (laughs) surprise you. Want you to check it out. So first I want to say there is a vibe in Atlanta that seems to be embracing kind of unconventional storytelling that's still very entertaining, but it's very, very unconventional. And I'm thinking about people like you, Casper, and, and honestly, you know, the first thing of yours that I ever saw, which a lot of people saw, was Too Many Cooks, the video that you did for Adult Swim several years ago. But also I'm thinking about stuff like Brian Lenano or Puddle's Pity Party. There are so many, like, really interesting kind of absurdist artists working in in Atlanta in in film. Do you find that to be the case or is that just my imagination? Yeah, I do. I think some of that might be related to Adult Swim being based Mm. out of here. I think some of it might be related to we have such a huge crew base now with all the movies being shot here that there's people who are down to shoot weird stuff in between the big (laughs) uh, Marvel jobs. But yeah, yeah. um, thanks for noticing. Uh, no, no, I love I mean, it just keeps it just keeps popping up. And like after I saw Ulog, I posted something about it on Facebook, and my, uh, our mutual friend Chris Mills mentioned that he knew you and that he's worked with you since. Uh, I think you started out working with Chris, correct? Yeah, we worked. Uh, we met on uh, Basket Case Three. Uh, oh wow! In uh, the '90s, <laughs> in the early '90s, uh, yes. Oh wow! Uh, he That's was. Good. I, I think he I was locations, and I was a PA, and that was my first. Movie job of all time, yes. Wow, oh, I met nice. Chris. I met Chris in 1995 on a movie called Mutant Species that David Pryor shot in Mobile, Alabama. I was I was a makeup uh, assistant, a makeup effects guy. Oh, and and one other thing is uh, also on Basket Case Three. I found out later, uh, Matt Malero, one half of Aqua Teen Hunger Force, also worked on that movie. Oh wow! Yeah. 
I will go down fighting uh, saying that Frank Henenlotter is like one of the most underrated uh, horror filmmakers ever. He he's made so many really amazing, uh, really offbeat horror movies. But actually, that I it makes me wonder if that kind of aesthetic got your your wheels turning because I th- I think about your aesthetic and it kind of lives in this world between like horror comedy absurdity surreality like it almost feels like you can pull any style off the shelf and put it into your projects yeah i think in college i was i'm really into sort of british kitchen sink movies like mike lee and i thought i was gonna do that (laughs) but the heart wants what it wants and i just started (laughs) doing doing uh you know Comedic horror. And yes, uh, one quick story about working on Basket Case 3 is, so it was my first job out of college and my parents were just not sure about me driving three hours to a night or whatever, an hour to a night shoot and then coming home and they're waiting up (laughs) slightly concerned. And they just see me come home at 5 a.m. with this huge smile on my face. And and they were (laughs) like, oh, I guess he is going to do this. Were you were you covered in fake blood? I they, I was a mutant. I, I did. Uh, they did put me in makeup, and I was a mutant in a couple of uh, party sh- scenes. Yes. <laughs> oh man, I love the Basket Case movies. I also love like Brain Damage. Like his his stuff is just so distinctive. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about your other stuff, but let's dive in and, and talk Ulog. So when I first put on Ulog, I had a weird feeling, probably that a lot of people did, that it's like, is this whole story going to be told looking at the log? Like you latched onto kind of a trope that I didn't even realize was a trope, which was like this U-Log video. And then you told a story with it in a way that nobody ever has. Was there ever discussion of making the whole movie just the shot of the U-Log with stuff happening off screen? Or what powered your decision to break out of the uh, out of that convention? That's a great question. Uh, yes, I think that was the original idea was the camera be locked off the whole time. Uh, but I think kind of inspired by too many cooks where the original idea of that was to just stay in sitcom world until everyone just finally turned off the TV, you know, but uh, <laughs> I, I decided to start adding different genres and, and just messing around with it. So I it's inspired to do the same thing here where I tried to keep the camera locked off as long as I could and maybe a little too long, but, uh, and then, and then start moving around. And also, you know, doing a movie, my first movie, I, I was excited to put Alex through his paces and, and do all kinds <laughs> of great camera stuff. I wasn't going to give that up. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was originally budgeted to be, the, that was their original thinking with Adult Swim. Said, yeah, that would be very budget friendly if it's just this lock off. It's really a radio play. And then I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> we might need I a little more in, money. <laughs> in the original script, I think... Uh, the original lock off where it zoomed in on the fireplace that's that was supposed to run for like two hours before Whoa. before anyone ever jumped in or anything just pure yule log for like two hours originally <laughs> i i heard through a lot in post there was a lot of conversation of uh you know is this going to be 30 seconds long is this going to be five minutes long is it going to be two hours long <laughs> yeah yeah how much, uh, how thinking- much yule log did you shoot I think we I think we shot like a five or eight minute segment knowing we could loop it. And then in post, you know, they could decide however long they wanted that to be. But yeah, it started with that first, you know, five or 10 minutes. Yeah, I think originally I wanted anybody who wanted to watch it would either have to discover it because it was in the background or fast forward to it. But in this land of uh, peak media where there's just so much stuff, we decided not to make people work that hard for it. (laughs) 
So, well, actually, I mean, I kind of want to go back because I feel like with too many cooks, if I'm not mistaken, the story as I've heard it was Adult Swim basically, it was designed to be like someone falls asleep watching Adult Swim and then they were going to run it at like two o'clock in the morning. So people would wake up and be like, what the hell is this? And just keep watching. And I feel like not that this is how you executed the idea, but the idea started as like, what if we have this running for an hour and then a story starts? Are you thinking about like when people are... uh, are just idly watching the TV and not paying attention to figure out how to capitalize and and, and surprise and and catch them off guard? I don't think that'll be my modus operandi for hopefully (laughs) other movies that I make, but I definitely was thinking of, well, that worked well for too many cooks, so it wouldn't hurt to lean into that for my first movie. But then that idea just came to me and it just seemed, I hate to use this term, like a sticky idea, like, uh, the image came of you see a close up of a fireplace and then you see these legs out of focus walk in front of it talking. And it just seemed interesting to me. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the two of you guys. Like, how did you come together? How did you uh, come to work with Alex on this project? Alex, do you want to take this one? Sure. So the whole movie was produced by an incredible production company in Atlanta called Media Team. I know them all personally and have worked with them a bunch. And then they were working with Casper to bid out the movie and get it going. And then, uh, you know, one thing led to another. They needed a DP and I got the call. And then, but honestly, I got in a little late. I think I, I, I signed on to the project like maybe three weeks before we started shooting. So it was a pretty quick catch up there. <laughs> and then, um, and then we were, went right into it. I just want to uh, jump in real quick here. Uh, Alex, did you say your prep time on this movie was three weeks? Yes. And we had three weeks to figure. And the first thing we did was like, all right, how do we make, how do we shoot a fireplace? Not only of just simply a fireplace for what we thought was maybe two hours and make it interesting, but then it zooms out and kind of goes into this theatrical kind of play look before the camera breaks. And then how do we, that was, I don't know, the runtime on that was what, 40 minutes, Casper. So we're like, okay, we got one shot. How do we keep this going? Because <laughs> the second half of the movie, as you all know, really picks up. So, uh, yeah, how to keep them in there the whole time. But I feel like we did a pretty good job with it, it um, you know, with the blocking and everything. Was it one unbroken take? or Because you, you have kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card thing where we wipe to a different time period or several different time periods in that same room. Were you able to block like that first 45 minutes and shoot it as one shot? So I think we initially kind of talked about that, but then once we got into it and just how much dialogue there was, uh, we found creative ways to kind of break it up. I'll, I'll, I'll share the secrets here. If you look on the left-hand corner when they walk up to the door, we kind of use that as a cutting point. So it's like when they walk up, they get right out of frame, and then we'll cut, and they walk right back into frame. Mm. And it kind of works out with how we initially, we purposefully kind of frame that that lock off so we'd have that little space for them to walk to since a lot of the interaction happens at the front door. Yeah, we shot that over three days and then, but there we actually, the scene with the sheriff, we ended up shooting weeks later or two weeks later and had to go in. Art department was having a fun time and we were, we had to reset the entire room to look the exact same and light it the same. And Oh, wow. Uh, that had to be really challenging, actually. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Made it work, though. <laughs> we we shot that later because we were attempting to get a, a celebrity cameo in that sequence. But it was such short notice, and we were shooting during uh, Comic-Con. So a lot of the names we were doing is like, oh, they're at Comic-Con. You know, they'd love to do it, but they're at Comic-Con. So, mm. And we also used the uh, – we hit cuts when we would rack focus to the wine bucket. 
we would oh interesting with the reflection on it if i had it to do over i would have loved to have had rehearsals and do it like you're saying but really the actors did not have time to rehearse hardly at all and when alex says he had three days of prep we didn't we didn't have that location figured out until even later than that so it was even less time than that yeah (laughs) we got that location pretty much right before a a pre-light and then went in there and just got started (laughs) Well, and and I want to talk to uh, both of you, Casper and Alex, about like for something where the basic idea is kind of starts as one shot of a fireplace. You go through a lot of looks. There's a Blake Snyder idea in Save the Cat of like never write a script where it's like, you know, alien mobsters on the moon. It's it's too many things. And he calls it double mumbo jumbo. And when I was (laughs) watching this, I was like, this is like quadruple quintuple mumbo jumbo there's every genre i can think of is is floating around in here including like just a straight drama there's a there's a real dramatic through line like i i can't think of anything that isn't in this movie how does that impact the visual construction of it well alex and i talked about it but i i think it was partly also my sensibility but also just being excited to make a movie and wanting to do five different things five different (laughs) first movies why not yeah. just do them all? <laughs> so there was definitely like uh, a feeling of do the classic cozy Ulog look and then evolve into sort of a 70s Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then evolve into the Nicholas Winding Refn Panos Cosmatos neon horror <laughs> as well. Like, why yeah. not? Let's go for it. You yeah. know, let's let's try I, a bunch of stuff. And Alex I was into the- it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I remember when I first read the script and I saw, you know, not only the hook of the the story, but then visually how it carried from that warm and cozy kind of feel to then turn into something else and then turns into something else and then turns into something else. It was just like, oh, we're, like you said, Casper, it's like, oh, we're doing four movies in one. <laughs> this is well, a lot of fun. And there's even like there's an element inside the fireplace itself that's like right out of David Lynch. Like it reminded me a little bit of the lady in the radiator in, in, in Eraserhead. And it's a dark and absurd and weirdly emotional again. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that ju- yeah, well, I, I, David Lynch is one of my heroes. I mean, big time. So I'm honored that you of course. see the comparison. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun to write. And it was great that people responded to it. Uh, Casper, w- were there any uh, kind of marching orders that you gave in terms of that? Or uh, like, what were your thoughts in terms of cohesion or allowable lack of cohesion or anything in between? What, like, what w- what was in your head? I wish I had a more logical answer to this or like I had a credo or something, but it really just kind of went off of feeling of what certain things feel right and certain things don't. And, Mm -hmm. and just talking with Alex and yeah, I have to toot Alex's horn. Uh, He was so great to work with. I shouldn't even say this because then I'll never get to work with you again (laughs) because everyone else will. (laughs) But among them, I mean, among all, in addition to making it look great, it would, you know, when you're setting up and like, okay, and the AD is like, okay, what are we waiting on? And, and Alex was always like, well, I'm ready. I've been ready. Like, he's so fast. <laughs> him oh, and his wow. team is so fast. It's like, oh my God, you make it look like that and you're fast? It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Casper. That's, uh, <laughs> that's years and years of shooting music videos. <laughs> nice. Uh, I got I to gotta piggyback off of something you just said, Alex. Uh, despite all of the content in this movie, I, I gotta say, this is this is very tastefully done. There's a lot of like, there's a certain amount of taste that permeates, you know, this horror genre bending. I don't even know what to say, but uh, but I'm curious how much of when you were visualizing this, 
was the thought like you know we're not just going to go crazy we're not just going to go off the deep end where like because the movie d- despite the content and subject matter to me feels uh restrained sometimes it feels like i i hesitate to say highbrow but it might be the highest brow lowbrow film i've ever seen whoa <laughs> wow well, that means a lot. Poster. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. What, how do you strike that balance? What's what's what What are you trying to do? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a lot of it for me, just in my personal kind of approach, is always based again off motivation. And when mainly it comes from lighting, I kind of I think lighting first and kind of camera second. To be honest, I came up as a gaffer, so it's just natural. But it uh, but to come we, in, we and, used and, to open every interview asking people if they saw things in composition or lighting. Oh, love that. Yeah. We, we eventually gave it up because it was I, I think we wore it out. But it's just interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Lighting is, you know, it's everything. But I tried to find just this relatable kind of look that, you know, we're the hard part is a lot of times on, on set, we'd be like, all right, we're shooting a movie about um, we called it murder log. That was our name for it on set. <laughs> Uh, and we're like, we're shooting a movie about murder log, but, or a murder log, but you know, how to, how to take that away from, you know, some, uh, Sharknado kind of vibe and that's way too exaggerated maybe, but, and then bring it back to something that's relatable that kind of feels like it could actually happen almost. So my approach there was to try not to, you know, move the camera in certain ways that weren't based off a reason. And again, all comes back to motivation and then lots of, uh, lots of firelight. flicker box yeah well also i think from my end we we i didn't have a lot of pre-pro either hardly at all and i was doing a bunch of other we both were doing other jobs leading up to this like i in a perfect world i would have boarded this and really and rehearsed and everything so in sequences like when pleatherface is attacking holly i think i realized anyway my instinct is let's imply most of that like Let's have it off screen and you hear you hear things, but you don't know what's happening. It's sort of like why Alien works well or Jaws is most of it is to the imagination or, you know, the ear getting cut off in Reservoir Dogs, you know, mm. leave it mostly to the imagination that works well. I didn't want to do like I spit on your grave here. I mean, like, it's hard to say exactly what genre it falls into, but I feel like it's more, I would say it's more comedy than horror. And if you were like showing realistic graphic mutilations, that would like, I always feel like in the horror comedy genre, it's a weird balance to not make it too morbid so that it's never funny or to not make it so goofy that it's never scary. But this, I feel like allows itself to be funnier than scary for the most part because you are cramming like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing, an alien thing, and then whatever the U-log is on top of yeah. all that. You, you, you have so many different <laughs> so many different horror genres you're kind of playing with at the same time, kind of juggling them. And it's it's amazing to behold. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, like, what was your schedule? How many days did you uh, guys have to shoot this? We shot for was it Casper 19 days. 19 days? 16 days? I thought it was 16. Maybe. Could have been yeah, somewhere around there. Like three weeks in again. a day, but yeah, something like that. Yeah, and then we had one pickup day for on a, on a green screen. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty short. And we, we pretty much, if I remember right, we were like five or six days on and then a day off, five or six on or something like that. But 
crazy part is we actually shot this a little over six months ago. So that's kind of the crazy part too, to be a part. I mean, I have some commercials that I'll shoot and they'll come out later than this whole feature film did. So it was kind of wild to go through the process of like, you know, there was a bunch of the whole team at Adult Swim working on the dailies, editing stuff together because we had such a tight deadline that we'd be on set. And after the second week, we could watch all the first week already pretty much rough cut put together, which was great for, you know, for this indie level budget uh, Mm -hmm. to kind of have that. And that helped a lot to kind of figure some stuff out, but it was wild. It was not long ago. <laughs> yeah. At the, yeah. At the time I, in post, I was tearing my hair out, but now I'm so glad we did it. You know, we made a 2022 movie. It's in the, it's yeah. out. It's in the can. <laughs> and did the pandemic have uh, any impact on the production at all? Well, we had the COVID. Yes, it did. We had COVID protocols and we lost an actor. Um, I think we lost two actors who tested positive. So we had to uh, swap them out last minute. Could just have yeah. them go into the fireplace. And, <laughs> never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, f- I feel like overall, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm just inspired by uh, with your work, Casper, and, and this movie in particular, is that I feel like it kind of blows a hole open in how you could put together a movie, how you could structure it, how you could make a very satisfying movie to watch, but in a really unconventional way. And you did you did it on a low budget. And I don't know what the budget was. I don't know what the budget was on Too Many Cooks. But in both cases, you found a really interesting story to tell that I've never seen told at all. And no one's ever going to tell that that story. But you, you're, you are the person who tells this kind of story, just like David Lynch is the only person who tells David Lynch kind of stories. But like, what advice would you give to someone who was listening to this, who saw this and was like, I have a different idea about what I want to do with a movie. How do you go about pursuing it, writing it? When you show this script to day in, day out movie people, do they say, oh, you can't do that. That's, you know, you're doing too many things. Or do they see the kind of creative inspiration that you're that you're kind of riding on? Thank you for that. I think, well, I'll say it didn't really come from a place of confidence. Like I didn't know if it was going to work, but I felt like you should try to go for it. Like that you should go to what you're scared of and take risks. And I, I took a few risks in here and it was scary. So I'm very glad that it worked for you. Um, and I, so I think that, um, uh, that is some advice is there's so much stuff out there this may be bad advice. If you want a career like mine, maybe you want to be <laughs> directing something much bigger, but I like to try to take risks and see things that I haven't seen before, hopefully, and, and just work intuitively and see what it just, what feels right versus following a formula. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully I that remember, doesn't sound uh, too cocky, but not, not at all. No, I mean, we don't get that many chances to make movies. And so to kind of put your, your money down on an idea that's so unconventional, whether you feel like you have the confidence or not, even just writing that script and showing it to people and saying, I'm going to make this, much less going through and and making it to me is, it's so meaningful because obviously we all see lots of movies. We all see lots of the same movies. We all see movies that are following the exact formula over and over and over again. And when you see something like this, which again, is never boring, never like checking my watch, but at every moment I'm like, what's going to happen next? You know, Mandy, I you know bringing up Mandy, I think is is a really interesting example because it's a movie that I feel very similarly about. Where it's like I was watching Mandy, I have no idea what I'm watching. I haven't seen this movie before, and there's something uh, really exhilarating about it. But like, uh, and, and I'm not gonna name movies that, that do this necessarily, but we've seen them where it's like something is like going against conventional structure or whatever, 
and it ends up just feeling pretentious or dragging or, you know, it thinks it's a slow burn, but it really only has like one thing that happens in the whole movie. And we see that over and over again. Whereas you have this movie that's like jam packed with ideas. So many ideas, like you said, like it's like you were making five movies in one. And to me, it's it's just a really engaging thing and almost a commercial for, yeah, read all these Blake Snyder, whatever books, Sid Field, but also be willing to not do any of that and know that it can still really hold an audience. Oh, thank you. There's two quotes that I found very inspiring. I'll share. One is from Matt uh, Weiner, who did Mad Men. He said, don't hold back for like the next season. Just blow it all out. You don't know if you're getting another season. Just use all your ideas that you've got. More ideas will come if you get another season. Blow it out. So that was his strategy. And that always stuck with me. And then I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers. And I was very surprised that they don't outline... I outline a little, but uh, they don't outline. And it blew my mind because Miller's Crossing is such this intricate device. But they said, oh, yeah, we don't outline. And they're quote, no, but well, they did. They did have the glass key. So they, they did have of... that. That's true. But they had a quote. <laughs> Somebody that, else outlined for them like, you know, that's seven fair. years earlier. That's fair. <laughs> uh, but they had a quote I really like. They're like, we figure if we don't uh, know what's going to happen next, the audience won't either. that's a good point Casper I gotta ask you when you started giving this script to people and they started reading it did you get back some blank stares did you get some people who who couldn't follow the the thread I mean you've got so much stuff going on here or was it like totally clear and the vision was realized from the beginning I mean maybe Alex could answer this question for for when he first read it did you did you get it immediately at hello or how did this process go of words on page becoming the uh the visuals that you got there yeah, for me, it didn't bother me at all. I, honestly, it was the most exciting part. I remember that when the producer called me to get on the job, he's like, we're going to do this crazy thing and it, half the movie's a lock off. And it's insane. But <laughs> it read, it read. I think, I don't know, I kind of envisioned it how we shot it, really. It's kind of, I usually the first time I read a script, I kind of get an idea of what I want kind of right off the bat, just off my own intuition. And then that kind of just stays with me until I'm told otherwise. <laughs> but I feel like it, it read pretty well. And I felt like it, it worked. All the dialogue and everything kept you going for that bit to stay in that lock off. But I think in, I think when I first read it, the lock off actually broke way earlier. And then I think after a couple of our meetings, Casper, I saw I was like, oh, we break. Oh, we break all the way here. And I think that was a moment where I was like, oh, this is a really long lock off. <laughs> But it worked. And I want to say something real quick, uh, just but kind of back to Casper and that note about confidence is I remember on set when we were shooting that lock off, you know, we, we shot that whole sequence over a few days and there was multiple times that Casper and I and Tim, the uh, producer, we'd look at each other and be like, is this working? Is it working? <laughs> Are you bored yet? Are you bored? <laughs> and we'd go back and just reassure ourselves, like to everyone, we'd be looking at each other, like, "Nope, this is working. We're good. We're sticking to it. We're good. We got this." And you know, there was a lot of days where, we, like, or, or a lot of moments in there where we were like we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, "God, is, is everyone just gonna get turn off the TV after watching this? Like, just this locked off shot? Is it too boring? Is it gonna keep their interest?" It, again, it comes back to kind of that confidence on set to be like, "No, we're here to do a job. We we know what we're doing. We're, we feel confident in the script. We feel confident in ourselves." And let's just do it and do it the best we can. And I think, and when we did that and, and it shows on screen. And so, well, um, I don't know. If, yeah. I don't know if you were in Ilya when, when we started, but I was talking. I about, want Casper uh, to answer that question. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh well, uh, I'll give you a little, a little backstory that maybe you don't need or want, but I had, a, I, I have it. a very special relationship with adult swim. So I sold the idea on the premise 
of oh, wow. a movie a movie that comes out of a of a Yule log. So then I was paid to write it and to figure out the story. I don't know if I would have written this as a spec script because I don't know if anyone would have given me money to do it. So uh, <laughs> I had that luxury. And then when I wrote it and all this stuff came out, I was scared. Like all this time travel stuff, I'm like, they're not going to want that. But I was so scared. But when I gave it to them, they got it and they, they liked it. Like there, there weren't really any notes. So there weren't huge notes of like, what if it's at the beach or something or whatever? So, uh, yeah, they, they got it, which was great because I, I had no idea if anyone would get it or not. You know, I, I was putting some personal stuff in there, too. You know, like I don't I've never said this, but the story, a variation of that story that happened to Zoe, where a, a co-worker takes money that happened to my wife. That was that's a true story. Oh. Partly. Wait, I mean, uh, really? yeah. So oh, I didn't know that either. Wow. Yeah. She, yeah. So I just was, cause I had to write it really fast. <laughs> so I just was kind of you in a fugue you know. state, yeah. just throwing right. things that were on my mind in there. I, it always is with me because, you know, she could have been murdered, you know? So anyway. Oh, wow. Wow. I, I mean, actually like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that just the interpersonal stuff between those people, especially in that first 45 minutes, I was my wife and I were like, yeah, this feels like real drama. Like there's something there's an absurdism that's happening overall. Like we're watching this U log thing and we see this thing at the beginning. We don't exactly know what it was yet. And we'll find out later. But then like all the human interaction just felt almost too real, like uncomfortably real and revelatory. And and that made it even more like lean in like, OK, what's what's going on? And I feel like as a viewer, also, it made me trust you as a filmmaker, like, OK, this isn't you know, you, you bring up a Sharknado kind of a thing like, no, no, the acting is real, the the writing, like there's something very real about it. I I try to think that I'm not doing spoofs. I'm doing I'm using a genre a genre as a playground to just explore things, but I don't think of them as spoofs per se. No, because it's being done very respectfully, like, you know, like, and when you get to the stuff where it's like a horror film, it feels like the kind of horror film, it feels like an Evil Dead kind of a thing, you know? Yes. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a spoof. It feels wholly original. And and the one thing that I can say about your filmmaking, at least between this and Too Many Cooks, is you are gloriously not restrained. You are, are taking that big swing. And uh, I'd say uh, for the two things of yours that I've, I've seen, they, they both work. They both completely work. They, you know, you went for the fences and, and you nailed it. Oh, thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to find that. I'm going to use that sound bite to play at 3 a.m. when I'm in bed with doubts and gloom. Yeah. Well, like in Too Many Cooks too, I, I feel like with Too Many Cooks, you do things like the Chirons become characters and they switch places with the actors. And like you do stuff that it's like we stare at the stuff all the time, but you approach it in a way that I've never seen anyone approach it before. And I think we would be remiss to not talk a little bit about Too Many Cooks because I feel like if I was working on a film, I got a call on it and somebody said it's the the writer director of too many cooks is going to be doing this i'd be like i don't know what it is but i'm i'm in like i know i know the ride will, will be freaky and again too many cooks is something i uh Ilya makes fun of me i probably watched that thing a hundred times i i've seen it so many times also he subjected me to it way too many times. i didn't enjoy it but like after the fourth time i was like yes i've seen it yes thank you yes. i know you love it but please thank I, you. I even started showing it to my four-year-old son but i didn't get to the you know the, the really uh the really scary stuff parent of the year 
clear here, Ben Ruff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were, my wife and I were singing the theme song. So uh, is the story that I've heard about Too Many Cooks correct, that like it was just made to kind of randomly come on at two o'clock in the morning for people who fell asleep watching Adult Swim and then just keep going and going to make them go like, what am I watching even? Yes, yes. That, so it's kind of a cousin to the movie in that way. They're both sort of sneak attacks, uh, you know. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I thought going into Yule Log, uh, I might just be watching the Yule Log for a little while. So, and, and I, I, do remember, I, I had assured you yeah. that there was a story before you saw it. You remember, really told uh, me nothing, which was great. In the, uh, when it premiered live on Adult Swim, uh, there was a live thread on uh, Adult Swim subreddit, and it was so fun to watch people talk about it but uh as it was happening but then i saw so many comments uh like two hours later when it was done of hundreds of people just being like oh what i tuned out of it because i thought it was just a fireplace and i like as as much as it i thought i would never say that that like i'm glad someone didn't watch our movie but at the same time i'm like we got you in a way (laughs) uh but and then there was, you know, a bunch of people that were like, oh, what the crap did I just turn tune into on set? We talked a lot about being like, we hope during the holidays, there's just a grandma who's like, oh, yeah, this looks good and puts it on. And, and then the rest happens. Um, that is so that I mean, I guess the thread here is that they're both very subversive in their approach to the audience uh, in a great way, in a way that I think, you know, uh, amazing films and stuff uh, often are. I mean, like, do you guys think? Think of yourselves as subversive creatives. Is is that what you're? Is, you, they you, subverted the Yule log. They subverted the fireplace <laughs> and the fish tank. It, no one has done that. I've never seen that in this regard. I think you're you're wholly original. <laughs> and there's one other one I want to plug. Uh, I did another 4 a.m. with Nick Gibbons uh, that was sort of about video game walkthroughs. Because as a gamer, I use them, but also my children would just watch them for games they don't even play. So I, I did a video game walkthrough where the person doing the walkthrough ends up being in another video game walkthrough and they start linking, uh, you know, the guy telling you how to play a video game it turns out to be a character in a different video game, et cetera. Anyway, so that's uh, well, Final you're, Deployment you're 4. The video game walkthrough. Final what, Deployment 4 called? is what it's called. Walk, Final Deployment 4 walkthrough. Terrible title. But anyway, watch that if you can. <laughs> Definitely will. So uh, in your mind, then, are you planning the next uh, unexpected genre to subvert? I, I don't know, in-flight uh, education for when you fasten your seatbelt and have to... Uh, oh, you know. man. Oh, that's I love, amazing. I would love to see you do that. That's amazing. I, I had one I'll never be able to do of, uh, you know, those little TVs at uh, gas station pumps, <laughs> you yeah. know, just doing something there. Yeah, I got a couple. And I'm doing also doing some theoretically regular movies, but... They probably won't turn out that way once I'm done with them, probably. But uh, yes. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I think that that's uh, an amazing place to leave it. Do you guys have uh, websites or Instagram or TikTok, whatever that you want to plug before we go? Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a website, CasperKelly.com. And I'm still on Twitter, at least for this second. This second uh, hey, Casper Kelly. I, I guess in Instagram as well. Same here. Yeah. And I got a... Uh, Website to www.alexallgood.com. And then on Instagram, I'm Alex is all good. Not to be confused with Alexis all good. <laughs> oh, oh no. Happens too often. 
Uh, and I'll just throw it out there that for anyone listening, if you didn't get those, you can go to the Camnara website where we're going to have show notes for this episode and everyone's link and Instagram is going to be right there. You can click on it and go straight to it. From and, and definitely, if you have HBO Max, definitely check out Ulog right away. It's Adult Swim's Ulog, I think is the title that you'll find it on HBO Max. Gentlemen, this is wonderful. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for so much for having us on, y'all. And I'm really glad you uh, liked the movie. So happy to hear that. So, holy crap, that was exciting. I, I know that both of us, I remember on that Zoom, Ilya, you had a grin from ear to ear the whole time. I did. And I just love Casper Kelly's work. Uh, Alex Allgood's a really cool guy. I just, uh, again, I can't state enough for anybody. Any, I don't know. It's not going to appeal to every taste. Definitely not. It gets, it gets very dark, uh, a little bloody. I wouldn't say super gory, but there's some extreme stuff in it. So, you know. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not broadcast television stuff. It's, uh, but, it's definitely premium cable. But it is just pure unbridled innovation and absurdism surrealism expressionism all the isms i'm gonna i'm willing to wager that most of our listeners probably haven't seen it and so here's a really good excellent opportunity for you to go and take a look at something if you've got hbo max to see if all the hubbub was worth it if you if you think that like this sort of thing is uh worthy of uh of all the uh the time that we've we've spent on it i i think it is and i think that it it was a wonderful conversation and uh I, i you know i can't wait to see what they do next yeah, me either. Those guys are great. So, Ilya, uh, I believe you told me that it was time for us to pay some bills today. That's true. We got to pay the bills. And and part of the way we're paying the bills uh, this week is we're going to thank our producer, Alana Cody. Uh, you know, Alana, yeah, Alana has done such a great job with the show. You've, If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you've heard us mention her on repeat. Well, she's got a company now. Uh, her company is called Green Tree Creative. And Green Tree Creative does social media management, strategy and planning, podcast launch and production, and digital content production. She is busy and she's uh, starting to do the same sort of stuff that she's done for us and for other people, for an even larger group of people now putting together her own company and really starting to uh, have that take off. So if you're interested in any of those types of things, uh, if you go to growwithgreentree.com, you can reach out to Alana and uh, she can uh, help you with whatever it is, uh, whatever sort of growth marketing, uh, social media management, podcast launching that, that you might need. She's doing all that stuff. She's amazing. And I feel like you can look, you could just go back and look at our podcast feed. There was a new episode once every three or four months, maybe, maybe less sometimes, huge gaps. And then literally the day Alana joined the team, it was one episode per week. She has helped us crack the code of figuring out how to keep this machine going week after week after week. She books our guests. She gets everything going. She really knows how to organize and and, and launch whatever it is you're trying to do. I think we're almost at a million and a half downloads now. So, and yeah, and, and most of that has come since Alana has come on board, which is amazing. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's the time we talk about our obsession of the week. What, is, what What's going on with you? What are you? What are you all about? Well, a lot of times people will talk to me about their screenwriting software. And the industry standard is Final Draft. And then you've got things like Writer Duet or Celtics, uh, Highland, which was created by John August and, mm-hmm. and is actually a really good one. But I wanted to really hardcore plug the one that I use the most. Bob DeRosa, my co-writer on uh, Video Palace and Catchers, convinced me to try Fade In, 
which if you get final draft, I want to say final draft costs you like 250 bucks. Mm -hmm. And every year or two, there's like an $80 upgrade. So you could stay in the old version, but it's an expensive upgrade. Fade in. I haven't checked recently, but I believe it's about $80 to buy it forever. And all the upgrades are free and it is easy on the eyes. Let let, let me just uh, chime in here because I was given a gift of uh, fade in many, many years ago. Version 1.0, the very really early on. Uh, and it was eighty dollars then. It's all they haven't yeah. raised their price. That's that's impressive. Yeah, and you might say, well, is one industry standard or not? You know, uh, I I remember actually once on Script Notes, Craig Mazin and uh, John August had the CEO of Final Draft on there, and that guy sort of dug himself into a hole. It, it was actually a glorious episode, but he was saying it's all about pagination. And you know, the thing is that with screenwriting software, it's really important that one page equal one page that it'd be very dependable and that there is sort of a standard way that, you know, if you format it properly, that it's going to lock in. And it's absolutely 1000% important because that's what your production manager and your line producer are going to use to schedule by and they schedule by the page. So if a page is a little longer or a little shorter per, you know, for each page, or if it's not dependable, that's a problem. But fade in is in every way paginated, as far as I know, identically to final draft and moreover if you need to put it into final draft you can export it as an fdx file and bring that right on into final draft that's cool uh, i use it for everything and on the project i've been working on right now we've been doing revisions on the script and it's just, i just find uh fade in easy on the eyes it's very well laid out there's you can turn them all off if you don't want to look at them but there's great navigating tools there's great tools for making sure it's formatted properly and there's also pretty good collaborative tools if you need to uh you know like when the pandemic hit bob DeRosa and i were in the middle of writing catchers for audible so we weren't in the same room anymore and we would just both fire up the same project and you can share it and uh it's pretty seamless we would just uh you know put ourselves on Zoom and and it was like being in the same room. So I just wanted to sing the praises of Fade In and uh, tell anyone who's thinking about getting a screenwriting software, if they don't already have Final Draft, maybe check out Fade In first. You know, you might like it more and also your bank account will like it a lot more. Yeah, big fan here. Anyway, so Ilya, what is your obsession this week? God, well, you know, it almost feels a little bit like something that could have made the news roundup. But as I sort of exist in this uh, this interesting space in my professional life as on the technical side of the industry, inevitably, I end up talking to quite a few people who want to talk about how VR is the next big thing or the metaverse is the next big thing. And I have been a naysayer. I've been a naysayer on this show for a very, very long time about how it is not the next big thing and people should have their expectations in check. When it comes to entertainment, I've been very sanguine about this and really not bullish. And uh, I will tell you, you know, with with very good reason that uh, the technology that has existed and the amount of venture capital and money that has gone into this space, I think is uh, grotesque and including like all the largest uh, companies, uh, you know, the largest companies out there, the the Apples and the Microsofts and the Googles. Mm -hmm. Well, as of the last couple of months and including today there have been huge huge layoffs at these companies including most recently microsoft i think gave 10,000 people pink slips today including the entire 
HoloLens uh, project, which was their latest headset sort of uh, I, a, a friend of mine was one of the developers of that, a guy named Michael Gorlay, who I've known literally since high school. He he, I don't know if he was still on that project, but it was something he was working on. And I want to I want to make it really clear. This is not uh, Scheidenfreude. I'm not taking pleasure in that that people are losing their jobs or people are unemployed. My point about this is, is that I have been arguing from the beginning that it is a, a, a failed concept and it's a failed methodology that people are going after this, especially in relation to entertainment. When most people get home from work, the last thing they want to do is put on, if they already wear glasses, a second pair of glasses or, or something heavy uh, on their head. And the experiences, and let me tell you, uh, the uh, as much as the connections between video games improving now and a better video game experience and a better seamless integration of movies and video games... The VR experience is very, very different, especially if you've got to walk around in the world and have an augmented reality. And we're talking about the amount of uh, data and mobile technology that is existing. It's not exactly it's an order of magnitude more complicated than your phone to have glasses that enable you to interact with the world in this yeah. uh, in this very, very science fiction way that, that it's been portrayed as spend the money now, get involved in this. And this is going to be the future. And aren't all you venture capitalists wise for, for being in on the ground floor? Well, Microsoft, uh, Apple just uh, laid off a, a ton of people. But there's a lot of people who have been working really hard at trying to bring something to the world where the technology wasn't there yet, even though they were doing brilliant, innovative work. The actual experience of what these tools are, and all of them are tools for one thing or another, are not yet realized. And they're probably not going to be exactly what people think they're for, just in the same way that segways did not revolutionize transportation. Segways did not suddenly spring up everywhere and no one is walking anymore. And those were the type of like predictions that were made when the when the Segway was was first announced. It's the same thing with VR. By all v- the same kinds of people. You know, like yeah. back back then it was like Steve Jobs and all these people saying that the Segway was going to change the way society was organized. And I and we didn't know what it was at first. And then when it came out it's like it's no, no, it's a not. scooter it's a it's a scooter it's a, a scooter that balances itself i mean that's it's cool i'm not i'm not bashing it no yeah, I mean, and, like, and it's like and i'm not bashing you know the metaverse and i'm not bashing vr but i am bashing the unbridled enthusiasm and money that was poured into it by people very intelligent people who really thought that uh you know, look they, they didn't ask me they didn't ask my opinion clearly i would have told them to to run the other direction but the reality is is that all of this stuff is way too soon we cannot do what is required from a grand technological standpoint in order to make that happen self-driving cars are way way closer if you want to talk about like science fiction technology well, i mean yeah they already exist they already but exist i can, can, can i can yeah. i tell a, a story that relates to this from my own uh personal yeah. experience yeah, go for it that in no way is you know scientific or complete and also could point to my deficits as a filmmaker but when we were doing 20 seconds to live we did an episode in vr and we shot it both in vr and Traditionally, I guess you'd say we shot it like a regular episode. It's mm-hmm. two days of shooting and we never released the VR episode because it was infuriating. Yeah. And it was early ish days for VR. Our mutual friend, Tim's Johnson, helped us out with the VR technology. It wasn't that the technology wasn't good. It's that as an entertainment experience, I get wanting to maybe play a video game in VR Maybe. I do not. I do not get wanting to watch a movie now. Eli Roth has some kind of uh, horror thing in VR that supposedly is coming out, and I think you know maybe I'll check it out. But I kind of feel like we like our TV and movies to be crafted with camera moves and framing and craft 
And the thing about VR entertainment is that it takes away, it takes the cinematography out of the cinematography because you ha- you can look in any direction. If and you if you want can't to stare look at the floor it, the whole time, you you can absolutely do that, which is yeah, yeah. not a and great that was, experience. Yeah. And that was something that like Bob DeRosa, who wrote that episode, it's called Medium. And again, we never released the VR version because it was infuriating. It was just the effect of watching it was no fun. We, we basically created a situation where the point of view is in the middle of a table and there were there was a medium doing a seance. And so the various characters were around you and you could look at all of them. And, you know, we realized that you couldn't just have somebody start talking. You had to almost have them be like, hey, so you would turn your head and look at them. And uh, it had its own separate language. I was actually thinking going in because I've done a lot of theater directing that it would be like theater. But it was almost the opposite of theater in the round. It was like theater around the middle of wherever you are and if you move the camera it could make people sick that there were like all of these weird things you you were encouraged not to pull focus so everything's in focus nothing's really lit i mean like george Foyt shot it he did a great job there were but you see the lights in the shot so you would have to paint them out in post no big deal Photoshop that, you know, it's not it's not hard to do, but it was just like all of those considerations and then to have like not a satisfying dramatic experience. And that was for me sort of when I was like, okay well, if somebody nails this, I'll be very impressed to see what they do. But it's not going to feel like anything that we're already doing. I think it's it's really telling, too, that if you look at the all of the early sort of VR stuff out there. The people who were the biggest proponents, I felt like all were people who had vested interests in it and not just fans. Even events like Sundance. Sundance curated all of these early sort of VR and AR experiences. And when I talked to people about them, like I said, what was really compelling about it? Would you go back and do it again? Almost everyone was like, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was an amusement, but it wasn't like something lit someone's imagination on fire. They didn't have to go experience it again. It wasn't like no one had passion for even what were the best curated things out there at the time. And I think there's plenty of other sorts of experiences one can have that uh, might be more transcendent than than VR, including just going to an art gallery, including going to a museum, including looking at a sunset. I, I will tell you that I don't <laughs> think that 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 VR uh, is giving anyone a better experience on basic things. And I heard all of those things pitched as what would be great about VR is you could do all these things that way. And I will tell you that the communal experience of VR and the metaverse is lacking compared to the actual in-person communal experience you get if you're trying to go do something with other people, especially people that you yeah. care about. So anyway, it's... Uh, I mean, I, I will say, though, I think it has massive applications in education. Exactly. Uh, there's There are absolutely appropriate applications, but education doesn't usually set the world on fire. It doesn't get all the VC money. It doesn't get people, you know, jumping out of their skin to, to invest in it. They all want to think it's the next Hollywood. They all want to think that they're in the, you know, but if you tell people like, you know, the segue is really, really appropriate for certain forms of transportation. It just is like VR is super appropriate for surgeons learning, you know, new forms of surgery and stuff without having to actually operate on a person. There is all kinds of wonderful applications for these things, but you have to have the right tool for the job and trying to force a hammer to be a fishing rod is just it's not a it's not you a just, great transition you just end with yeah. smashed fish everywhere yeah, you know the guy exactly the it. guy who who ultimately bought the ip for the Segway ran off of a hill and with one of them and died oh that's right i heard that oh, i thought that was the i thought that was the creator that was was that the no no the, cra- the cra- okay. creator's still around it was like the guy yeah. who who owned it i i always remember at like at peak Segway moment there was uh president george w bush 
uh, falling off a Segway. You, I'm sure you can that's, that's find right. that video. Yeah, there's there's a YouTube video of that I'm, I'm certain. Yeah, well, anyway. I I, th I think it's interesting that you're making that comparison though, because I think that's that's it it may be apt. I, I have to say that uh, I never uh, am like, hey, you know what I want to do? Put a friggin' you know five pound rig on my face. Just you wait. I guarantee you, there's someone who's heard the sound of my voice and is like, you know what we need to do now? VR on a Segway. That's the next big thing. Venture capitalists, get your checkbooks ready. VR on a Segway. All right. It's coming. <laughs> oh, man. Get that, get that shit on MySpace. All right, buddy. So, uh, uh, so who do we have to thank this week? Hey, let's thank our sponsor, Alana Cody, who is, of course, kicking all the butt you know, with her new company and uh, getting us a ton of interviews and a ton of stuff happening for, for Sundance this year. We are busy the next, uh, mm. couple, the next uh, few days for sure. And, but really into the next week I have I, and the next two days, I know it sounds like this is like for serious first world problems, but I'm like, when am I going to do this? I have to watch two features in the next two days. Yeah, and, uh, hey, I got you beat. I got to watch two tonight. Oh, so. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, uh, let's thank uh, Ben Katz. Who's going to edit all this stuff together. Ben Katz, who cuts these shows together, makes us sound much more eloquent and succinct than we actually are, which is wonderful. Thank you, Ben Katz. Uh, and of course, Kay's Alatrachi. Kay's, you know, I, I, had, I had coffee with Kay's today. Kay's happened to be right in my neighborhood wow. because there's an electronics store not very far from me. And he was buying, I'm not, I'm not shitting you. He was buying like diodes. Really? I don't know what do I, I, doomsday <laughs> weapon he's building, but go K's. Uh, light emitting diodes? Was he buying LEDs? No, he was like oh, okay. making custom circuits for synthesizers. That sounds like him. Yeah, yes. for sure. <laughs> well, let's thank Kays for all the music that you heard. I know he's got some new stuff that, that he uh, is working on for us. Ben, where can people find you? They want to track you down. Uh, go to benrock.com. Uh, you can find all your Benrock information there. All my social media stuff is there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Neptune Salad. And you can find me just as regular old Ben Rock on LinkedIn. How about yourself? Where can people find you? You can also find me on LinkedIn. I had someone uh, request uh, some questions about uh, starting their own studio uh, on LinkedIn, which is fun. So uh, happy to, I'm getting on a phone call with someone tomorrow uh, uh, talking about their new studio. So if you want to build a studio or have questions about uh, trying to do something safely in a, in a studio, building a, a grid or other things, or you need gear for it, you know, hit me up. Uh, I run a company called Hot Rod Cameras, which, you know, of course, if you heard the fancy British lady at the beginning of the show, so you know, fancy. The, sponsor, the sponsor of the show. So that's where you can find me. So, so Ben, what else do we have to say? Not a goddamn thing. Thank you for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.